I essentially found that people who believe deeply in God and experience God as I did, when they have been a part of uh, research projects that involve brain imaging, um, those experiences don't really have a significant verbal component, but people who wish to deepen those kinds of experiences, it, it really does help to be involved in some form of spiritual practice. So I, I shortcut any theological claims and went to a very pragmatic approach to faith that this is something I can do that will help me um, deepen the experience I had on the beach and help me encourage certain types of uh, brain development and behavioral changes, um, all the while admitting I know absolutely nothing about any, any related fact claims to this word I used to use for God. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. This is Ryan Bell. I'm your host and this is episode 48. I have a really exciting conversation to share with you today. Mike McHargway is our guest. I recorded this conversation with Mike a few days ago. He is the author of a brand new book called Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. You may have heard of Mike by his internet handle, Science Mike. He is the host of two popular podcasts. One is called The Liturgists, which he co-hosts with Michael Gunger, looking at different uh, topics uh, from science to art to faith. And then his uh, own podcast, Ask Science Mike, in which he fields questions from his listeners about science and faith and life. So, so Mike is a, an interesting guy, for especially for this podcast, because he has taken a little bit of a different journey than everyone else I've talked to so far. I've mostly talked to people who have lost their faith, and occasionally I've uh, spoken to some Christians who have remained Christian, like Diana Butler Bass. Uh, in this case, Mike is someone who went from being an, an evangelical, a fundamentalist by his own accounting, to an atheist, uh, believing in no gods or the supernatural of any, of any kind, and then back to a kind of mystical belief in uh, the divine and, and God. He explained that to me uh, as I asked him a number of questions. It's not an easy thing to, for me to get my head around, but Mike did a really nice job of, of being honest and really reflecting honestly on his views. The book is uh, also very uh, entertaining and, and uh, well told, and he brings these issues up one by one and talks about how he sort of walked himself back into the Christian community, uh, albeit with a very different view of God and theology and the Bible. So, yeah, I'm excited for you to hear this show. It's been something I've been looking forward to for quite some time. I had a chance to meet 
Mike uh, last year when he was in Los Angeles and he and I went to uh, a thing that Rob Bell was doing and uh, we talked a bit um, at that event. And ever since then, I've been looking forward to having him on the show. Uh, when I found out he was writing a book, I decided to just wait until his book came out and then we would really have a uh, subject or a sort of a focal point uh, to our uh, conversation. So Mike is well-spoken, a very generous, kind-hearted man who shares many of the same uh, desires and, and interests in the world that I do. And I think you'll uh, find this conversation really intriguing. You can learn more about Mike at his website, mikemchargway.com. The links to his podcast are there on the homepage, uh, as well as some links to his upcoming speaking tour events. Maybe he's coming to a city near you where you could go and hear him speak. I'll put all of these links in the show notes, as well as a link to where to buy his book if you're interested in doing that. Earlier this week, I posted a shorter episode uh, checking in with Greta Vosper, who just last week was uh, received the news from her denomination that she is unfit for ministry in the United Church of Canada. Uh, that may not be shocking when you find out that she's an atheist, but the United Church of Canada is pretty unique in its history of being progressive on any number of different issues, including um, the issue of God. So uh, check that out. Uh, episode 47 is a quick update with Greta, and if you haven't heard the bulk of her story, we tell that story a bit more in detail in Episode 2 at the very, very beginning of the Life After God podcast. So Episode 2 and Episode 47 uh, to catch up on the latest news with Greta Vosper. If you want to find out more about the Life After God podcast, you can do that at lifeaftergod.org. We're more than just a podcast. We also uh, offer community online as well as individual coaching services over the phone and Skype. So uh, go to our website to find out more about that. Follow us on social media where we update daily about things that are happening in our community. If you appreciate this podcast and would like to give back, I would invite you to go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod, and you can make any size recurring monthly donation there. really helps me uh, produce this podcast in a regular way. Thank you to all of you who have given so generously already and continue to do so month after month. Without you, this truly would not be possible. So that's enough from me. Let's get right into this conversation with Mike McHargway. Mike McHargway, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Ah, so good to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. I've been looking forward to having you on the show. We met a couple of years ago at a, a Rob Bell, Pete Holmes comedy thing that they were doing a little bit of, but I became acquainted with you before that in some uh, internet uh, forums that we were both a part of and have been intrigued about your story. Uh, folks know you, uh, as I said in the show open, uh, as Science Mike. So some, Which some, is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like, disclaimer, you're not actually a scientist, right? You're a science enthusiast? Uh, totally. Science enthusiast is the best possible word. But that's um, great. We need... I aspire to be a science communicator, but I think I'm more of an enthusiast. Yeah, no, I think a science uh, enthusiast, science communicator uh, is, a, is a great uh, thing. I mean, we need that in our culture because science, I often say, uh, people's biggest hangups with... Uh, hot button issues in science and we're really jumping ahead of the story here but i feel like people's hang-ups have to do with the fact that a lot of these things aren't intuitive 
in the, the frame of time that our brains are wired to understand, which is like yesterday, today, and tomorrow, <laughs> you know? Right. But when we get into these super long, you know, epics of, of history, uh, our brains are just like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. So it really <laughs> helps to have, have science communicators who can uh, break that down for us. But before we get into your current life as a science communicator, podcaster, um, public speaker, writer, um, I want to talk to you about your story. You've got this new book out called Finding God in the Waves. People can read your story in detail um, in the book, which I recommend that they do. But just in brief, uh, can you give us like the beginning of your journey, um, how you grew up as a Christian? Sure. I was uh, your basic Southern fundamentalist. Um, I grew up in the evangelical church, specifically the Southern Baptist denomination. I would probably, as a teenager, called myself a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. <laughs> um, what was the half point you didn't go for? Oh, gosh. Let's see. On Tulip, um, which was the one that kept me up at night? Gosh, that's like trying to remember like, yeah. why you love the Ninja Turtles or not. Um, probably Predestination was the one that I was a half on. Yeah, the double pre, the part um, where God predestined people to be lost and burn in hell. That was... Yes. I, couldn't, I was that never was a Calvinist, but... That that one I had trouble with, uh, but that's what I, that's the system I grew up in. Wow, um, as Southern Baptist, a happy Southern Baptist. I liked the sort of um, epistemic certainty that that worldview offers you. Everything in the box is coherent and makes sense. You have a systematic understanding not only of God but of morality, human behavior, the right way to live. There's just no questions. Everything is answered. And um, it didn't help that I had a healthy, loving church community whose expression of that rather brutal theology tended to be relatively socially aware and impactful. So my church mobilized its theology, for example, in responding to natural disasters or uh, collecting large amounts of food regularly for, for at-need or at-risk families in our community. And uh, so that led me on this trajectory where I grew up Baptist and stayed Baptist. I was a deacon by the time I was 25. I played in a worship band and um, taught Sunday school. The whole ball of wax, all the success points you could measure for wow. you are a good Baptist. Uh, I was, you know, 10 for 10. <laughs> so, <laughs> like and, Paul, you know, a Baptist like Paul, of the Baptist. Right. I was a Baptist of the Baptist and felt good about it. Um, I felt like it made me a good husband, it made me a good employee, and it made me a good productive member of society, as well as a person who pleased God. Hmm. Yeah, it's nice to have that sort of um, all-contained, hermetically sealed worldview. Um, as I was going through my uh, liberalization as a Christian, I was still a pastor, I was still a Christian, but I was slowly losing my confidence about various points of theology one by one they were sort of crumbling and and I remember feeling that I wished I could have this kind of naive confidence that I saw some of my ministerial colleagues have or some of my church members where they just knew that our denomination was the remnant church of bible prophecy and there was a part of me that sort of scoffed at that like oh that's so ridiculous but on the other hand there was like gosh it, it seems like their life is really well organized like they have a a story that accounts for everything and that part of that was it felt like that would be a relief to have that Ryan I think few people have that insight the nostalgia you can have 
for the certainty you once had and the level of psychological comfort that provided. Um, and I think only people that have really deeply been a part of a, a more fundamentalist sect of some faith can understand why that faith tends to be so sticky. Um, and it comes down a lot to that feeling of certainty that quite literally works against feeling stressed, works against feeling lonely, and has all kinds of psychological benefits completely independent of the truth claims that back it up. So like me, you began to experience some pretty severe doubts, starting with just questions that were nagging you. What were some of those? Well, my dad, who was our music minister at our church, had an affair and uh, decided to leave my mom. And I, as a good Baptist, well, that's not allowed. You can't do that. Like, you may think you want to do that, but you're a Christian. You don't have the ability to have that kind of autonomy uh, in your faith. So I confronted my dad about that and told him I would lead him through a Bible study. (laughs) Just like, talk about overconfidence, right? Like, I'm going to take my dad and lead him through a Bible study that's going to fix his marriage. And I'm also a nerd. I've always been a computer nerd, always really into science. And so I approached it like a research problem. And I read the Bible in three months just to try to like like power lift and be really familiar with the whole text. Wow. And that's, that's quite an undertaking. Actually, it, it's, it sounds like it. Um, the Bible's a big book, but any book cut into slices is approachable. Sure. So a Bible reading plan, if you read quickly, an annual Bible reading plan is like 20 minutes of reading a day. So you're only talking about an, about an hour a day of reading to do the Bible in three months if you read fast. So it sounds like a lot, but it's not, it's not actually that much. Okay. But the problem is when you do that, um, I'd always read the Bible like with these study guides or in conjunction with teaching Sunday school. I'd never actually just done a cover-to-cover read of that book. And when I had this particular frame of reference where I'm – um, mining the Bible for the solution to a problem, I guess I read it more critically than I usually do. Sure. And it's the questions for me came from the Bible itself. For the mm. first time, I kind of became aware of not only the very obvious scientific or historical anachronisms in the Scriptures, uh, or not even the, the still quite obvious um, troubling morality of especially the Old Testament God, but to some degree the New Testament God as well, but the points at which the Bible contradicts the Bible. And if you're a Southern Baptist, that's a huge deal because you've been taught that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. Those are basically seminary words that mean the Bible's perfect. It was written by God, and so it's not prone to the same kind of problems that human texts are. And when I started to read contradictions in the Bible's pages, that wrecked my understanding of God because my understanding of God came through the Bible. Uh, And so that led me to this process of searching, first through Google, um, where I would try to find answers to these questions. And Google would tell me what apologists had to say, but Google would also tell me what skeptics and atheists had to say. And I had to be honest with myself and realize that every time the skeptical answer to problems in the Bible was more logically cons- consistent, was less of a stretch, was easier to understand, and made more sense of the Bible. Yeah, uh, And that kind of led to this process where kind of theological point by theological point, is God moral? Does God answer prayer? Uh, 
did God create the universe? All these things one at a time just sort of fell down until there was nothing left. Hmm. Wow. And then you sort of began to sort of move your reading and research more over to uh, the atheist authors, it sounded like, from reading your book. Like you started to read, say, like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris and kind of get their take on things. Dennett, Harris, Hawkins, um, you know, just that whole whole group. That Robert Ingersoll Mack became someone I read a lot oh, of. Oh, yeah. He's kind of an older atheist. God, he's the best. And it, it simultaneously kind of kicked my ass <laughs> and made me feel alive if that makes any sense oh it made to me it makes complete sense <laughs> yeah i mean i was i have yeah we won't go into my experience right now but i know exactly what you mean it, you feel like oh my gosh i i've never even knew this was possible to think this way well as my theological ideas fell things i'd struggled to understand for my whole life uh einstein's theory of relativity quantum mechanics um infinite cosmic inflation, I suddenly found the works of scientists who weren't primarily skeptics, at least religious skeptics, more accessible because I wasn't trying to shove them through a Genesis cosmology. And so at the same time, I felt like God was this dear friend, by the way. I loved God. I cannot overstate the degree to which God and Jesus were really active uh presences in my life. But as they were dying, I felt this newfound strength in seeing the world more clearly and understanding science and math better than I ever had. And these are these are things I'd studied my whole life, but I can remember rereading uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time and it making sense to me for the first time hmm. because I wasn't trying to twist those concepts through my theological assumptions. I mean, I remember watching for example, like a National Geographic show with my family as a kid and and the narrator or the scientist that was on would say something about millions of years of evolution or billions of years of cosmic evolution and thinking, well, I mean, obviously that's not true. Like, you know, like it, I just dismissed it without a thought. Um, and it wasn't until much later when I took science far more seriously that I encountered like the real um, opposition of these two worldviews, the way that they really don't fit together. Yeah. It, yeah. Fundamentally, they make radically different assumptions about how people can know things and where knowledge comes from. And I think that's the often unspoken subtext whenever Christian folk or even religious folk in general have conversations with skeptics is very few people on either side uh, are disclosing or um, consciously aware of those epistemological differences. That's true. I think most conversations like that come back to epistemology or what assumptions you're willing to start with or able to start with. So so atheism, as you said, was, you know, your sort of step into that kind of mind frame was a relief to you, but it sounds like it also came with some pretty serious pain and suffering as well. Can you talk about that for a sec? Yeah, when I realized God didn't exist, I was praying. <laughs> and so I just sort of told God, you don't exist. This is It's crazy that I'm praying at all. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that um, 
for them realizing there was no God was this moment of incredible liberation and freedom. But for me, it was much more akin to grief. Hmm. Um, if you haven't been deeply religious, these sorts of things are are hard to understand because it sounds somewhat like mental illness. But the the entity I felt closest to in my entire life was God. So the amount of emotional trauma I can only compare to losing a spouse or a parent. Right. Um, it was I, I was deeply, deeply grieved for months. Uh, which, of course, I couldn't tell anyone about because if you're a Southern Baptist deacon, you can't just show up at church and admit to atheism without incredible consequences for your relationships, without causing a lot of other people great pain and discomfort. So as I was grieving this incredible loss, I was also – and I'm I'm a very emotionally demonstrative, affectionate, social person, so – I had to do the thing that came least naturally to me and pretend everything was fine, uh, which took me to some really dark places hmm. uh, emotionally. There was a period where uh, I pretty seriously contemplated suicide hmm. um, and, of course, never never told anyone. I didn't, of course. I love my wife. I love my children. And that was sort of the light in that darkness. But uh, it, it was it was months of of incredible emotional hardship. What got you through that? I mean, how did you um, manage those uh, dark days? It was an atheist on Reddit. Okay. That got me through it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, I had this kind of dramatic thing where I posted an AMA on Reddit. Um, all of my, my atheist conversations online were done through a series of pseudonyms and anonymous accounts so that no one could figure out it was me. And I posted one just after I'd stopped believing, um, asking, saying people I was about to stop believing, what should I do? And just weighing what Christians and atheists would say. Of course, the Christians almost universally said I was going to hell. Right, of course. And the atheists said, everything's going to be okay, man. <laughs> don't, don't, don't worry so much. This is it's just a thing you're going through. Like if you, if you feel like you want to die because God's not real, then just believe in God. It's no big deal. <laughs> Uh, and so that, that like really encouraging response from skeptics, um, basically I kind of abandoned my pursuit of, uh, what some of my Christian friends today would call the Christian imagination. Mm -hmm. I just let that go, but it made me feel lost because my understanding of morality, purpose, and meaning were all completely theistic in nature. So I was stuck in this kind of philosophical nihilism, Mm -hmm. kind of a dark nihilism. And, uh, I posted on uh, one of the, not our atheism, but I think a true atheism, maybe a debate religion, somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know what to do. Like, my life is meaningless. And one of the the commenters said this very beautiful thing in response of basically like, so you used to love the poor because of Jesus. Like, serving the poor was a big thing to you. So just serve the poor. Right. It doesn't matter if there's a Jesus or not. <laughs> what you're missing here is beauty still exists just because you find it beautiful. And now the meaning of your life is whatever you make it. You can choose what meaning you want for your life. So if the thing that mattered to you before was addressing human suffering, but because of Jesus, will just address human suffering. 
And that kind of took me out of a, a, a nihilistic atheism and, and moved me towards humanism as my personal philosophy. Um, and once I kind of made that leap to humanism, that, that emotional darkness cleared pretty quickly because now I had the, ch- the, the choice. I had the uh, autonomy. I had the agency to do for myself what God once did for me. Yeah, I mean, I think your story resonates with so many of us who have been down the same path where it sort of starts with this feeling like a death of a loved one um, or a really bad breakup, you know, a divorce or a bad breakup of some kind. And you just, you know, cannot shake the sense of absence of this person, difference being that, you know, the God construct was always just in one's mind or in one's heart or or wherever you want to locate that experience of God. Um, but it's, it's as real, you know, as, as losing a, a, a deeply loved friend or, or family member. And then you kind of begin to realize that what's beautiful about this God free consciousness is that we, um, have some power back that we had surrendered to this God person that, you know, we can sort of be ourselves. We can pursue what we love. We can love who we want. We can uh, experience all the beauty of of being alive and being human without having to filter it through this um, hard to access uh, being, you know, that has a lot of opinions and and ideas about the way we ought to live our lives. And and I think that was for me as well that dawning that that I can love people just because they're lovable and I like you know, I, I respond to, to love in that way, or I can appreciate beauty just because, you know, my brain tells me that it's beautiful. Um, and like you said so many times in the book, like you can explain uh, evolutionarily and psychologically and, and neurologically why things uh, were drawn to certain things as beautiful or tasty or, um, you know, enjoyable and were repelled from other things as a part of our, you know, development over millions of years. Um, so I think your story resonates. I mean, it really makes sense to me. What's interesting about your story and, um, you know, what I think makes your story somewhat unique, although I know there are, you know, it's not just you, other, others have experienced a similar thing is that you then found your way back to God. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) Sort of. You know, you can't deny that when I use a word like God today, I'm talking about something radically different than when I was a Baptist. <laughs> and also, the other thing I'd like to kind of call out that, that might be a little bit unique about my story is I, I've also noticed both before and after my experience, a lot of Christians who would say something like, I was an atheist for a time, don't actually know what atheism is <laughs> right. and never experienced it. What they mean is I had a very dark night of the soul. When I say I was an atheist, I mean... I lacked belief in any God or gods right. and that I had a completely materialistic epistemology. And I, I have noticed it is quite rare for people to get to that state and then return to some form of faith. Right. Yeah. So would you say that you have a materialist epistemology now? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So you've held I on... I consider myself a materialist. Okay. So meaning, and just to break that down for folks too that may not know. I mean, it doesn't mean that you want to go to the mall and buy everything that you see, but 
but that what's <laughs> though you may have days like that too as i do <laughs> but uh it it basically means that what we can uh, observe with our five senses plus amplification with tools that we've been able to develop uh is what is available to to be known is that is that fair yes yeah and that, and then the way i interpret materialism is a complementary philosophy called empiricism and empiricism is the idea that i place confidence in beliefs in proportion to the evidence I have to support that belief, yeah. I mean, so it, it's it's it is it is an odd mix to be a materialist empiricist who identifies as a Christian mystic. Believe me, I understand that contradiction. <laughs> yeah, no. So let's go into that a little bit because I I think um, it is puzzling and intriguing. Like, where do you locate your faith in the midst of that? Where where does that live? So. Um, I'll go slightly narrative to get to the meat of the answer. This will Please. not take long. No, go for it. But what, what happened to me is a couple of puzzling things. I was in a state of where I was a humanist, uh, a humanist who was frankly very tired of pretending to be a Christian, and had started telling the people close to me I didn't believe in God anymore. And I was planning a trajectory wherein my public identity matched my private beliefs. And... um I had grown completely comfortable and confident in my skepticism. Um, I was starting to see, I, I never considered myself a new atheist or an anti-theist. I didn't think religion was a primarily harmful force in the world, but I certainly saw where those critiques had incredible value and that there were many cases where especially the authoritarianism in religion was an incredibly dangerous force in human societies. Right, um, And... But then I went to this conference about creativity led by a pastor, and I uh, got invited to take the Eucharist, basically decided not to. And then I heard like this audible voice um, that I ascribed to Jesus, which was really confusing. Uh, at the time, I was a mythicist. I didn't think there was ever a historical person, Jesus at all. I thought that was completely... Uh, mythology that had had warped into history over time and you know kind of a jesus seminar approach right and uh and then later that night i stood on the beach trying to process what had happened and prayed a, a relatively accusatory prayer to this idea of god and then i had what scientists call a mystical experience where uh, time seemed to slow down and kind of freeze frame and um I experienced this incredibly bright light that I saw and felt, and uh, through that light, I felt an overpowering sense of love, like love and approval from a divine energy to myself. And um, through that love and through that light, I felt that same love and approval for all other humans and all life on earth. And I felt this kind of glimpse of hidden knowledge where uh, the suffering we experience uh, and the logical contradictions of God didn't seem to be a problem. They, they seemed to be a perfectly natural expressions of, of, of this, whatever you would call it. Uh, and then it stopped, and I, I kind of came back. And it was really the most overpowering experience I've ever had in my life. It sounds like a kind of Joan of Arc type of experience. It really was. But here's the problem. I was still an atheist. Like... Just because I saw this light, the really 
amazing objections to a theistic God were still in my brain and still made more sense than that light did. So I went home and asked my neurologist for a CAT scan because I assumed I had a brain tumor. Hmm. Um, and I didn't. So then I was left like, well, how do I make sense of this experience? Can I? So I cracked open my Bible and found the same anachronistic, brutal nonsense I saw before the experience. Right. I tried to read uh, theological works, even really progressive theologians like John Shelby Spong, and found too many supernatural assumptions in their work that I just couldn't get behind. Um, so I started studying um, anew cosmology and astrophysics, looking for how the universe came to be, if I could find a glimpse of God there. Uh, careful the whole time to avoid falling into uh, a God of the gaps argument or an ontological God and uh, found some things there um, that were interesting to me in terms of the, the, the way in which significant parts of cosmological development are real, are very difficult to put into language or fit into the human conception of space time. And then I also found, um, I was looking for how uh, religious experiences form in the brain, and that started with some very poor uh, research that's been debunked, but then led to much more interesting research about human brains respond to beliefs in God. And once I found that, um, I found really encouraging things about the practice of religion and spirituality, but not to the fact claims that it makes. And I essentially found that people who believe deeply in God and experience God, as I did, when they have been a part of uh, research projects that involve brain imaging, um, those experiences don't really have a significant verbal component. But people who wish to deepen those kinds of experiences, it, it really does help to be involved in some form of spiritual practice. So I, I shortcut any theological claims and went to a very pragmatic approach to faith that this is something I can do that will help me um, deepen the experience I had on the beach and help me encourage certain types of uh, brain development and behavioral changes, um, all the while admitting I know absolutely nothing about any, any related fact claims to this word I used to use for God. So... It reminds me of um, Sam Harris's account of spirituality in his book Waking Up, in, in which Absolutely. he he channels a more Buddhist, uh, you know, sort of lexicon for describing this experience. But for millennia, really, Buddhists and you know, proto Buddhists or whatever, like pre Buddhists, have found this kind of pragmatic um, benefit to becoming aware of one's own thinking and one's own surroundings and sort of getting some separateness uh, from uh, identifying with our thoughts and sort of seeing our thoughts as sort of things that are happening in our brains and that we don't have to be our thoughts, that we can, you know, find some space to actually think about our thinking, which is a pretty high level uh, cognitive function. But, but in general, I mean, there are theistic Buddhists, but in general, Buddhists have never needed to account for a supernatural God in the midst of all of this. They just felt, have felt and feel that there is a higher level of consciousness that can be achieved by practice. Yes. Um, and so, it, so, 
Sam Harris, um, when I read Waking Up, he became my favorite theologian, if you could call him that. Yeah, he is. Because the way of... he expressed his spirituality was very, very much in line with the way I express my Christianity. I call myself a non-theist. I'm not an atheist. I don't reject uh, when people use the word God, even in a theistic context, they're talking about something at least, and at least what they're talking about is a brain state. Um, and so I'm not pointing to some supernatural being with conscious and agency. What I am talking about, what I can say empirically I'm talking about, is a particular posture that creates a certain neurological state that humanity has traditionally called God. So on page 150 of your book, um, you begin uh, the first sentence of what becomes your axiom about God, and, and you say God is at least the set of forces that created and sustained the universe. And and I think by using this word forces, you sort of avoid potentially being cornered into a kind of ontological God, a God that has flesh and bones and thoughts and agency and all the rest. Um, but then, I mean, forces like physicists mean forces. Right. I mean, but it, and is it kind of, you know, pardon the childish association that I'm making in my own mind, um, but the, the first thing I thought of was like Star Wars, um, <laughs> that there are the, there's this force that is sort of, in a sense, the ground of being in the Star Wars universe, right? There's the, the force is something that flows through everything. Um, some people have more contact with it than others. Um, some people are skeptics and deny that it exists, but some have mastered its use and can uh, accomplish great things, both for evil and for good. Although I think we could leave out that evil or good piece in what you're thinking about. But, Absolutely. but, but is it this, um, is it a disembodied kind of impersonal energy that you're, because when you it's say it's not even an energy, it's, I'm literally talking about like, um, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces. But then why the would you, field. why would you pray to it then? Oh, that's a great question. And why would you go to church to worship it if it's this impersonal? I mean, and, and you, a moment ago, and let me throw out a couple of questions here. Um, oh, this is great. Yeah, because you say on you know on the previous page, and I I, I have my notes, all my uh, notes, and you can tell when I get frustrated because I write really fast in the margin. <laughs> <laughs> you said um, over three years after losing my faith, I had finally arrived at an answer to the question: How do you know God is real? I know yes. God is real because I see the work of God via telescopes, space probes, and particle accelerators. Instead of fighting science or trying to filter science through my understanding of God, I discovered that you can begin by accepting scientific evidence and therefore scientific accounts of how our universe came to be, dash, and still see the face of God. And then yes. I put dot, dot, dot in the gaps. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, so I don't know if that's... But the gaps implies I'm resorting to the unknown. Right, Which the, is not what I'm doing. Okay. Right? If I was saying, well, we don't know the specific nature of the singularity, therefore God, that would be the God of the gaps. Right. I'm saying I see God in what we know. I, I started by saying, if there's a God, what would that God look like? What are the features we ascribe to God? And one of the main things every religious tradition does, Eastern and Western, is ascribe God's role as our creator and our sustainer. Those are two of the most fundamental claims behind this word God. By the way, I spent an enormous amount of time looking up different definitions for the word God in different English language dictionaries and then other uh, non-English language dictionaries just to 
get the best idea of what people mean when they say God. And so the, the two claims I could find that were really consistent were God created us and God sustained us. And when I tried to find that in science, I got to that, that definition, basically physics, Einstein's God. You know, Einstein would unselfconsciously use the word God, but no one would call Einstein a theist, not reasonably, not if you understood his writings or what he communicated about faith. God was talking, or Einstein was talking about uh, the mathematical consistency to how the universe operates, but he approached that with a sense of profound awe and reverence. And here's here, there's two things you said that I'm so glad you said. Why would you pray to that, and why would you go to church to worship that? Well, that's absurd to do those things in response to basically an, a non-conscious-driven pantheism. Yeah, because what you're saying does, I'm glad you said pantheism, because what you're saying sounds a lot like pantheism, and that, that's, Star Wars is a kind of, you know, sci-fi pantheism. But when, at that point in the definition, I'm not even going to like a Star Wars force pantheism where different people tap into this force. That God I'm talking about in the first half of the axiom, everyone is interacting with all the time because they're made of particles that in every interaction collapse from probabilistic waveforms into something at least momentarily more discrete, and they do that by interacting with these forces and by being composed of these forces. So there was no distance from this God, uh, and, and it, there was a way to be awed by the scale of the cosmos and see beauty in it, but it did not in any way justify uh, any kind of spirituality other than maybe a, a late-night contemplation <laughs> right. uh, and, 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 and a prayer or community. And so there was, at the same time, I could, I could say the word God and feel historically grounded and feel like I wasn't abusing the dictionary to do so. Uh, but it, there was also a bit of a letdown when I went, oh, that's it. But there's really not that much to this. And that did nothing to help me contextualize or understand uh, that mystical experience I'd had on the beach or the ones I'd had earlier in life. And that's when I started to turn towards neuroscience. So there's this, when, I, when I'm talking about God, if you look at the whole axiom that I get into as experienced by, uh, it, it, God becomes God. God becomes worthy of that word God in most people's minds when experienced through a particular way our brains operate. Uh, and that that came to me not only through neuroscience, but also through Sufist theology. Who these these Sufi uh, Muslim theologians in the Middle Ages uh, basically said that you looked inward to find God. That 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 God was the reflection of all in you. And uh, that idea got me thinking more about um, you know the, the the neuroscience of spiritual experiences and how. They only came to life when, um, in some ways, you kind of you kind of let go of language, or or you even use language in contradictory or, or troublesome ways um, to kind of uh, trick your brain into to entering this this altered state of consciousness. And uh, when I incorporate that second part of an understanding of God, a God whose only consciousness may be in humanity uh, or other conscious organisms if they exist. Uh, you find a justification for worship and communal practice simply because research shows that those are techniques that 
can help you approach this experience. But they don't refer to anything uh, materialist in the world or the universe. They do. They refer to neurons, synapses, neurotransmitters. So you are sort uh, of subjective experiences are part of reality, and they. I believe that they have a materialist foundation. So when you say just a couple pages later from the one I was reading a minute ago, you know, kind of at the end of that chapter, you you say, let me say it. I believe in God without crossing my fingers or adding a lot of disclaimers. And there was freedom in that. I could approach God as something other than a a convenient self-deception. And I could talk to God in the unselfconscious way I did before I lost my faith. So, and again, I'm not... You know, and I think you understand me. I, I'm not trying to like pick on you. I'm just, I really want to dig down this into is what the most you, fun I've had in weeks. Okay. I, cause I want to know <laughs> what do you actually mean when you say talk to God? If God is sort of the, the strong and weak nuclear forces and gravity and all the rest, if that's sort of the, where God lives, as it were. I mean, we're using these anachronistic kind of expressions, but totally. if that's where God's house is, if that's where God lives in those forces that make up everything that exists, then who or what are you talking to? Yeah, well, first of all, most of the time when I pray, uh, I, I'm contemplative now. Right. So okay. I wouldn't use words. I would sit in silence. So when you say talk to God. But sometimes I talk to God. I still do that. Okay. Um, so my dad had this horrible stroke. Uh and they told me he was half paralyzed and he might not survive. Hmm. And I was so afraid. And I'm driving with my mom down four hours to the city where dad had been at a conference and had this stroke. And I felt so helpless. And I had nobody to talk to except my mom. Um, and I just I felt so alone and so helpless. And so I started to pray. Now, on, on one level, I had an awareness that like through the work of someone like Tanya Lerman, that a lot of what people who have conversations with God that have an interactive component, uh, her research indicates what they may be doing is training themselves to experience certain cognitive processes as outside their own consciousness because they're more weakly associated with the seed of consciousness in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, so I, I was aware on some level, maybe I'm just letting these ideas ricochet around in my brain, but that still helps me process them. Right. Um, I still see that, for example, um, some research has shown that people who pray regularly to God get an emotional benefit similar to paying a therapist. Because oh, sure. There, there's freedom in just the, the vocalization. So because I'm a mystic, I'm not pinning down exactly where that prayer is going. I'm saying that if I look at it closely and I'm forced to define it, I would say, well, what's most likely happening is I'm letting my brain talk to itself. Uh, but also, because of the power of these experiences, in a completely subjective way, I have a a hope. I wouldn't call it a fact claim. I wouldn't even call it a belief. But I have a hope that that maybe there is more to spiritual experiences than simply a brain echoing back to itself. And again, I have absolutely no factual basis to make a claim like that. Uh, what I'm talking about is very similar to when someone, and I've heard um, humanists say uh, that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, quoting Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, that's 
not a factual claim you can make. The the arc of the universe bends toward entropy. <laughs> when we hold on to that arc, it manifests itself in our lives in beneficial ways. It helps us sleep at night, and it gives us the courage to face a lot of the darkness of life. And when I say I talk to God, I'm saying that in the same way a humanist would say the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. So, so it's so funny. I go back and forth to being like, yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Um, <clears throat> so when, <laughs> when you talk about the utility of meditation and prayer um, or the utility of communal experiences of awe and wonder that a Christian might call worship and a scientist would probably just call awe. Um, I, I get it. I get it. And I, I, I understand what you're saying and I experience the same things myself. So I, I get what you're saying. And this is again, where you're talking about neurotheology. And I wanted to ask you about neurotheology because at first I thought this was a term you coined, but it's actually referenced oh, in, the, no. in the literature. Um, you talk about, on the bottom of 64, going on to the top of page 165, if believing in God is important to you, research says that you can start by pretending God is real, giving your brain something to work or play with as you build new neuro- a new neurological image of God. Um, and even this, I find, like, I texted a friend when I read that. And I'm like, man, Mike is, like, refreshingly honest. Like, I feel like I was... <laughs> I was waiting for you in this book to say, I was ready to fight with you because I was like, I was ready for you to say, oh, no, no, there's this God that's real and it's accessible. He's accessible in this way. And then you're like, no, basically I'm pretending that God is real until my brain catches up. And then I have this experience of God's presence that is useful to me. Yes. And I think very few Christians or or even very, very progressive Christians are going to admit to pretending, <laughs> you know? Like, this is one of, for example, Peter Bogosian's huge criticisms of faith as a way of knowing things, uh, as an epistemology. I mean, basically, pretending to believe, t- pretending that things that aren't real are real um, can be dangerous for people. I mean, it's a, it would, you would, you know, under some, many, maybe most circumstances, you would call that a disorder. Uh, you know, pretending that aliens abducted me uh, because I like the attention that I get when I tell people that I was abducted by aliens or something. I mean, you're talking about something much more uplifting uh, than attention seeking, but we could pretend that a lot of things are real that aren't real. Um, how do you, I mean, how do you manage that? Or how do you know that your pretending is is good and someone else's isn't? Oh, man, this is so good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. I just had to, I had to vocalize my joy with this moment a little bit. That's okay. Cause I'm just Uh, like, I'm just like, ah, I wish he was sitting here as I'm reading this book because it's like, on the one hand, I'm like, gosh, I did not expect you to say that. And then I'm like, but I still have so many questions about that. I'm a moral pragmatist. So how do I judge? Uh, well, let's stick with your language, then transcend it. What I'm pretending is good or not. How does it affect my behavior in the world? Right. Am I, am I addressing suffering or causing it? Am I violating others' consent or honoring it? It's a really simple rubric I use for what is moral or ethical or beneficial. But let's get back to that word pretend. At, at the, the greatest point of insight I've had about human beliefs, and this includes atheists, is all our brains are doing is telling us a story about our sensory input. It's a model of reality. That is relatively low fidelity. We're all wrong about things all the time and ignorant of the things in which we are incorrect about. And our brains, once they have some amount of certainty or comfort in our ideas, 
really resist changing that worldview. So um, if you're a very educated person who self-identifies as atheist and you uh, read information that goes against that social label of identity, completely unconsciously, research tells us that you start disregarding that information. You don't process it fully. You don't remember it. It's not that you make a choice. It's your brain tries to defend its map of the world. The same is true, by the way, if you call yourself a Christian or a Buddhist or a trapeze artist, whatever it is, right. uh, your brain kind of defends that. Sure. Um, and so when I, and when I use pretend or play in this way, it's completely independent of a fact claim. So if you're having a really – and I use this example in the book because I think it's a great one. If you have a very troubled relationship with a partner or spouse uh, and you have a, gone through an experience where you've effectively deconstructed your neurological image of them that once incorporated many parts of your brains, but at this point kind of come down to nothing but this like uh, rational, analytical, linguistic label of spouse or partner or Suzanne or whatever, um, the same technique works. If you start just with any mental image that's positive associated with that person and contemplate on that, you start to change the neurological composition of this idea in your mind and give the brain something to then emotionally associate with. Yeah, that so makes sense. The idea of pretending God is real is completely independent of a fact claim of God or a definition of God. It's just something to poor foundation and scaffolding for the brain to then start constructing inside of. The reason I'm so consistent about that, if believing in God matters to you, is I don't make some claim that believing in God should matter to everybody or that that's even the correct thing to do. Uh, my point is what I've kind of learned in the research is that um, for many people, belief in God is is emotionally beneficial behaviorally beneficial, and if they're going to believe in God, frankly, I'd rather them do so in a way that is morally and behaviorally beneficial, I might even say compatible with humanist goals of human flourishing, than say an angry authoritarian God that encourages them to violate other rights or, or, or partake in violent action. Well, that see, that brings me to another question, yay, objection that, that I have about the use of the word God, because as I'm listening to you, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I feel like, uh, I'm also a naturalist. Uh, and you talked about, you know, empiricism a moment ago. Um, and I think you're right. We do deceive ourselves more often than we, than we are aware of that. We are fighting always against, uh, a construct in our minds of things we've already accepted uncritically. And empiricism is a tool that we've developed over the last couple hundred years to, help us deceive ourselves less, you know, that we have an, yes. an outside point of reference that helps us say, okay, can, we can all look at this coffee cup and we can all agree around the room that yes, there's a coffee cup here where I'm not making it up in my mind because all of us see it. And when we break it down to its component parts, we all agree that that's what it's made of. It's made of these atoms and these molecules. Yes, we all agree. So, you know, my, my question, I, I feel like you you would say, well, let me just ask you, like, do you feel like 
Christianity is important necessarily or any meaning-making system that you happen to grow up with and you just grew up in North America in the 20th and 21st century. So you uh, that's the name of this meaning that that makes sense to you. But if a person grew up, say, in, you know, in the Indian subcontinent, they would have a different name for it and that would be fine. Or a neurologist or a neuroscientist might just call it neuroscience and that's fine for them. And they're getting the same mm -hmm. experience out of it, like the way Sam Harris would. Yeah, uh, I don't make exclusive religious claims. I don't make fact claims using faith at all. Um, so my, my, I have the same objections to faith-based fact claims as as any skeptic does. So uh, I I am fully aware the reason that my spirituality uh, is Jesus tinged and Jesus centered is a cultural artifact of my upbringing. Uh, the word Jesus, I mean, I've probably heard the word Jesus more than almost any other name in my life. Right? Yeah, me so too. I have a lot of neurons associated with that word. So I'm just going to use them. Sure. Um, and if someone else grew up, uh, you know, Buddhist or grew up Mormon, I don't, I don't say that my faith is better than theirs. I don't know. I doubt the whole world needs Jesus. I just do, and I'm comfortable with that. It's like I like vanilla ice cream. It's okay for me to like vanilla. It's okay for me to think that vanilla is the best ice cream in the world as long as I don't force everyone to eat vanilla ice cream. Sure. So this word God, um, which you have through the process of your life and study redeemed in a way, um, the concept of God, and you've sort of shaped it into something that is useful to you and others that see the world the way you do. Um, on the other hand, would you agree that this, and I think you referred to it a second ago, that this word God is hotly contested and probably if we were to take a survey of, um, you know, Americans, we would find that almost no one shares your idea about God. In fact, a lot of people, judging from the political climate that we're in, uh, do make exclusive claims using the word God to support their exclusivity and then voice that um, sometimes with legislation, other times with even violence upon other people. Uh, which has caused a lot of us in the skeptic and atheist community to say this word God is too dangerous a word to use because it means something else to most people. And it would be lovely if we could save this word from that kind of tyranny and that kind of overbearing uh, force. But I've really, for my own part, grown skeptical of this idea that you and, you know, Rob Bell and you know, other people can do enough to make God a good thing again. Oh man! <laughs> or, and the, or like, and and that by I using I want to do this every week. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> like that by using the word God. I mean, as other times, this is certainly not an original idea with me, but that like using the word God, you using the word God, and writing a book and putting it out there in a Christian press and giving it out to Christians who already have a a neurological map in their mind, right? As you said, about what God means to them. They're like, look, Mike can believe in God, therefore I can believe in God, and really miss the subtlety of what you're saying and and basically say, well, science supports my belief in God, and now I can go about my life as a Christian and do all the things I was doing before to sort of impose my Christianity in subtle or less subtle ways on the society. It just seems risky to me. Rather than deconstructing the whole thing and just saying, let's talk about 
primarily about what we can all agree on, like the coffee cup, you know, like that, that we can all agree about. Yeah. So first of all, that's a completely valid critique. Um, I have some responses. I don't know if I have like a full on pushback. Sure. No, I appreciate Um, that. So first I would say anytime, um, people use God or faith to force their beliefs on others, you'll find me standing shoulder to shoulder with skeptics and atheists fighting that. Yeah. And I think if you, if you follow me on Twitter, Mm -hmm. if you follow my podcasts, you'll find pretty quickly that I am very, very vocal about when people use faith to interfere with the rights and liberty of others. Uh, but let's also say, and this is, this is true, this is just a true fact, um, the fact that I use the word God brings me a degree of credibility with many other people that Richard Dawkins doesn't have. Literally. the fact, Even in the weirdo, mystic, almost singular way I use the word God, the fact that I honor it at all and I place myself within a Christian tradition means a lot of people listen to me that won't listen to people who self-identify as atheists or skeptics. So the fact that I use the word God in some ways makes me a more powerful advocate to my fellow skeptics who call themselves atheists than I would be if I also identified as an atheist. Now, I, some people are going to hear that and they go, oh my gosh, it's a big act. Mike pretends to be a believer for pragmatic reasons. That's not true. <laughs> I, I, I hope people can see in my work that what I work the hardest at is being as honest as possible at all times. Sure. Uh, even if it is like a PR disaster for me. But so there, there's that. I'm going to fight with you. And what I'm finding is the people who are drawn to my work that identify as people of faith are ready to join that fight as well, which gives me hope, which brings me to the next idea Beliefs in God change all the time. It's not like we've had some stable image of even the Christian God for 2,000 years, much less theology and the Judeo-Christian tradition. Ideas about God change all the time because words are just sounds that humans associate meaning with. Right, right. And so I'm as free as any other human being in all of history to push and change and modify the definition of God. And effectively, if I can convince enough people to agree with me, my idea of God will show up in the dictionary because it's right. just a consensus we've all come to. Well, so I wish you the best humanism in gave me. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I'm actively trying to re-identify the word God. And then the last point is that God is sticky. Like neurocognitively, we're finding humans have an incredible tendency. If you somehow magically struck the word God from human memory, I think you can make a scientific case a new word would emerge for the same concept that although atheism and skepticism have had a good run in the West, which I'm grateful for, uh, we're finding in younger people, um, especially in Europe, increased interest in religious fundamentalism because in some ways a lack of religion in their life has failed to inoculate them against more radical ideas about God. And globally, in the global South, uh, faith is growing quite quite rapidly. Uh, Globally, Christianity and Islam are growing far faster than skepticism. And so I think you could make another argument that what's good for the species is to adopt better ideas about God and that your energy might even be better spent 
giving better theological ideas about God that promote human flourishing than trying to destroy ideas about God altogether because we see uh, pretty valid sociological critiques that atheism tends to be an affluent belief system. Well, excuse me, atheism is not a belief system. But there's a high degree of overlap between uh, global affluence and uh, using this term atheism or even skeptic. Right. So when I look at that larger soup, uh, certainly I would place myself on the side of skeptics in critiquing the abuses and harm for religion. But I think as a pragmatist, I just say, this is something human brains are really strongly oriented towards. So how can we make sure that orientation is as healthy as possible? Yeah. You know, part of me, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, do you experience a lot of cognitive dissonance in just in your ordinary life? Because as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, gosh, if I'm Mike, I'm in turmoil. Like, I mean, you were in turmoil, and it seems like you've kind of found a nice spot to sort of not, you know, obviously we don't ever remove uncertainty. In fact, you seem to thrive on this uncertainty as any scientist would. Um, but I, I guess I found that, you know, my cognitive biases, um, that, that I had been living by my cognitive biases for so long that it, that it was sort of liberating for me to become aware of them at a deeper level and realize that a lot of the things that I had built my life around were things that I either a just expected to be there. And so they looked like they were there, uh, or, um, they triggered, um, you know, reward systems within my brain uh, that that made me feel good. And I guess I felt like that wasn't a good enough reason for me to believe them or to live by them. And to me, excising this notion of God and using the word God was part of the liberation that I experienced in becoming an atheist. It, It doesn't mean that I don't meditate. It doesn't mean that I don't find awe and beauty and wonder in the world uh, every single day in humans and in the natural world and in the cosmos. Um, and that by reading a scientific book, I, I'm just blown. I'm reading this book right now called I Contain Multitudes. Um, mm, and that's by, a good one. By Ed Young. Yeah. And I'm just like blown away by what he's saying. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Um, but by for me, part of the freedom of letting go of faith as a uh, epistemology, as a way of being in the world, um, was also associated with letting go of this the word God, which for me mm. I was unavoidably and inextricably linked to these ideas about faith and religion that you and I both reject. Does that make sense? Like I could. Uh, yeah, it sounds. Not only does it make sense, it sounds like the healthiest possible expression of your life experiences. Yeah, like I could never go back to using the word God in a clever way to mean something that I mean that's unassociated with theism because I think I and so many others have that word so deeply linked to, to theism. And, um, there's a huge part of my audience that self identifies atheists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I couldn't figure out why they hung around so much. The two groups that puzzle me the most in my audience are the atheists and the conservative evangelicals. Like I have no idea why they hang around. And on the atheist side, I eventually figured out like they appreciate my genuine search of truth and my utter lack of any desire to convince them they should use the word God too. Yeah. You see what I mean? Like, I think that's like healthy. 
I think the, the degree to which this book reads like a memoir, it it's to me, um, fine. Like, I mean, I think to me, to me, like if anybody's story is their story and, uh, and you seem, I mean, if you didn't seem aware of your cognitive biases, like, like one of the, one of the most, like one of the places where I laughed the hardest in the book, and I don't think you meant it to be funny, but when Rob Bell says, you know, there's these buckets and we put things in these buckets and then there's this God bucket and everything you don't understand, just put it in the God bucket. And I was like, wow, that is the most like bold, like straightforward expression of cognitive biases and sort of confirmation bias that, that I've ever heard in my life. Like, and, and I remember another friend of mine, I was talking about God of the gaps and he said, yeah, I kind of do believe in God of the gaps. I mean, to me, that is my faith. And I'm like, well, that's how refreshing, you know, to have a Christian admit right. that, you know, just to say, yeah, my, this God bucket is basically my sort of cognitive biases. I want to believe in God. And so therefore everything I don't understand, I'm going to put in that God bucket and I can yes. literally, that bucket will hold literally anything. Literally anything. Literally anything I want to believe that I don't have evidence for, I can just put in that bucket and call it God. And I was so troubled by that analogy that he gave. And then on top of that, to tell you not to think too hard about it, um, I was like, that just seems irresponsible to me. But then it turned out to be incredibly neurologically valid. For you? For anyone. What do you mean? If you think too hard about why you love someone, you'll fall out of love with them. That's That was the point. So this is the thing. On one level, kind of a, a, a rational analytic level, which is, by the way, the best way to figure out facts about the world. Right. <laughs> Your critique is perfect. Uh, but if you, if you overanalyze, this is based on how brains function. Yeah, but if that you overanalyze with... relationships or paintings or anything... That's not how the brain interprets love or beauty. That's a different part of the brain. And when you do that in association with any linguistic object and you call that brain state up and you push it towards the, 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 the prefrontal means of, of, of thinking and knowing, Rob was right. If you have a moment of religious reverence and beauty, if you overthink it, you will actually kill it. Sure. Um, I, but that, I guess what just... I'm saying is that that starts with the assumption that I want a relationship with God and that I want to redeem it somehow. Like yesterday, my Correct. my kid got in trouble and I had to drive an hour out of my way that I wasn't planning and I had to cancel my conversation with you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I was so angry and I was really, really upset with her. And I, But luckily, I had this hour-long drive in which I could conjure up my positive memories of her, how much I love her. By the time yes. I picked her up, I was fine. I was relaxed and I was able to hear the story of what happened fairly uh, unemotionally. But that started with me having a relationship with my daughter that I care about and I don't want to lose and that mm -hmm. I want to uh, find a way to make better every day. Whereas with God, I've never met God and I don't know, you know, with any sort of reasonable certainty. In fact, I know with some reasonable certainty that, that that there isn't a caring, loving God out there that has interest in me. So I I guess I would not have come to that analogy seeing it as something benevolent. It, it To me, it just felt manipulative, if yeah. that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. But you but wanted... But for someone like Rob who's wrestled with doubt... Right. Who wants to believe in God? That's right. He wants. He was sharing to. his lived experience. That's right. 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 And, and Rob, I, I know Rob well. 
he has no more interest in convincing people they should use the word God than I do. Um, and I just think it's so great Rob, that you're aware of your yeah. of your confirmation bias. Like, so I basically saying like, I want there to be, a, I want to believe in God in some sense. Let me find a way to make that make sense with everything else I know. Right. I value this way of seeing the world, and I prefer a Christianity which is aware of that because it that creates a sense of humility when you're aware. I'm basically choosing to look through the world through a certain set of rose-colored glasses. Right. It's really hard to then turn that into an argument about, like, trans people can't use this restroom Ugh, or my no. scripture should dictate someone else's life. Nope. That's, that's gone now. Right. What, what you're left with is uh, just the sense of beauty and divinity and connection. Your book just came out yesterday. Um, and so I guess we probably don't have enough evidence uh, to to base any conclusions off of. Uh, but you have been out there on your podcast for quite some time. And you've been writing other articles and things. And I would say, for me, the best test of whether your message is getting out there is how pissed off uh, evangelicals are about what you're saying. Because if they're not pissed off, they're not getting it. Well, I mean, so some notable evangelicals who I'm not going to encourage their work by naming them, have said I'm a bigger danger to the faith than Richard Dawkins. I agree. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I, from that perspective, from that perspective, I don't mean, yeah. I, don't mean that I agree that you're dangerous. I, I think that from their perspective, that's, that could be true. But I often speak on the platform in conservative evangelical churches, and I do so honestly, and speak clearly on issues that we disagree on. And I have found that the profound sense of humility I bring to those conversations bypasses a lot of the vitriol completely. So if you go read my iTunes ratings or uh, if I let, you know, sent you some emails I get from readers, people say, I agree with you on almost nothing, but I wish more people had respectful conversations like this. So that gives me some hope for uh, public discourse that so many people listen to me that agree with me on nothing. This is skeptics and believers that <laughs> just want to stop screaming at each other. Yeah. And if the, where my work ends up doing is just helping people scream at each other less, I'll be really happy. I have a sneaking suspicion that the average person in the pew is living with a lot of cognitive dissonance in their life that they don't yes. know what to, how to express it. They may not even know they have it. And when they hear you talk, they're like, well, yeah, I live my daily life in the business world, in the scientific community, in the educational world as a teacher or a professor. I mean, they live their lives in the world that we all live in, and then they go to church and they hear things that just don't make sense, but they want both. They want to have both. And so they just create this wall in their minds like you describe in the book, and they can keep both going. And, and then when you come and talk, it gives them this sense like, oh, maybe I can have both and have less dissonance or something like that. Right. Right. That's, that's literally what I'm trying to do. I think the, the social science case is really clear, not only the nuns, but the nominals. There's a lot of people who go to church every week, and they're not entirely sure why they do. And that that's not some small fringe group. They just think they are because they don't talk to each other. And right. So what I'm trying to do is de-shame this kind of thinking and avoid the kind of existential angst that drives a question like, can I believe in evolution and go to heaven? Um, 
what an unnecessary bit of suffering. Right, exactly. I agree. And I think as you're trying to de-shame this notion of uh, a materialist, empiricist worldview sort of married to a kind of mystical belief system, or not belief system is the wrong way to say it, but a mystical experience of, of the world, whether through Christianity or whatever your religion happens to be, and my trying to de-shame a, a kind of um, a benign atheism, you know, where I think you and I aren't probably aren't that far apart. I, in fact, I'm, I was reading your book and I'm thinking, if he just wouldn't use this word God, I would, I would be so happy. <laughs> we, we would be really on the same page here. Um, but the difference between you and me is that you really wanted to be in the Christian community and I really didn't care. That's yeah, it. I love the church. That's it. Yeah, that's, and I really don't difference. anymore. <laughs> I love the church. It's, uh, it's a complex relationship. But... Um, I come, I come to life in a special way on Sunday mornings in a pew singing hymns huh. and taking the Eucharist. And I just know that. Yeah. And I know that's, that, that is the difference between me and you. I just don't think that that makes me superior to you. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, but that's what happens. Most people, not most people, but many people, especially conservatives or evangelicals, derive some sense of moral superiority just because they like to sing standing in lines and, you know, and, and participate, participate in this ritual. And it's just a thing. It's not, it's not a, it's not a fact claim. It's not a, it's not related to what happens after we die. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a thing. It's a thing that, that we do with our brains. Well, I hope that your memoir, um, helps countless people, thousands and thousands of people, um, be able to have a, as I've said before, like a closer relationship with reality, um, to be less afraid of science. And I think your podcast has been doing that for quite some time now. And I hope the book just continues that uh, trajectory. And if uh, some of them uh, become atheists, you can let them know about my podcast. And if I run across some Absolutely. that uh, want to remain Christian, I'll refer them to you. And that we can, I mean, I think the fact that we're having such a great conversation here actually uh, is, again, part of what we both want to see, which is, you know, people exploring their questions and their doubts, not to be afraid. One of the things I consistently say is don't be afraid of any question that you have, which I was taught to do as a child, that I could not ask certain questions, that they were really gen generally off limits. And um, when I got to seminary, even, there were certain questions that came with ready-made answers. Um, and I, it was only after seminary that I thought, well, he, that professor just waved his hand at like a hundred years of theology, uh, just said, well, that was, you know, the Roman Catholic, blah, blah, blah. And we don't believe in that, you know? <laughs> and I'm just like, that's not, that's not good enough. And it's not good enough for anyone. And so anyway, I hope that your work uh, continues to help people uh, rectify some of the dissonance that they have and uh, best wishes on the tour that you're about to embark on. Yeah, we, I was just talking to my wife this morning. We realized it's my last Saturday at home until the end of November. <laughs> well, then you better get off the phone and go hang, yeah. out, and go hang out with your family. <laughs> hey, but listen, thanks for having me on and thanks for your work. I mean, you know, I was really excited when Life After God launched and yeah. tried to share it out with my community as well. Um, because I, these conversations are important and this kind of like venom-free Here's why I'm at. And even like 
here's why I think this is the best way to view these things. Right. But without the vitriol or the dismissive, dismissive nature towards other people or really the mocking, um, I totally would be thrilled if people were on a deconstruction journey and countered my work, became atheists, and ended up listening to your show um, because you found a way that this is just a healthy expression of how you see the world that, as you said, makes you feel close to reality. And I completely celebrate that. So really honored to be on the show with you. Well, thanks, Mike. And uh, we'll hopefully catch up with you again down the road. Thanks, Ryan. Well, thanks again to Mike McCargway for coming on the show, spending some of the last few hours at home before his tour talking to me. I hope you appreciated that conversation and some of the nuance that we got into I don't know if you've ever encountered another individual like Mike who expresses his worldview in the way that that Mike does. I'd be very interested to know what you think of this episode. If you want to share that with me, you could write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Is this something you relate to? Is this something that seems strange and bizarre to you? Do you think there's value in what Mike is saying? Do you have any pushback to it? What did you wish I had asked him I'd love to hear from you what you think about all this. Again, you can find Mike's book at Amazon.com or wherever you buy your books. Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. Also visit Mike's website, MikeMcHargway.com. Check out his tour schedule, see if he's going to be visiting your neighborhood. And listen to his podcast, two of them actually, The Liturgists and Ask Science Mike. Perhaps you could ask him a question. He has a little uh, widget on his website where you can record a question that goes to him, and then I presume he would uh, consider answering that. And aside from the differences that Mike and I may have, I really appreciate his generosity, his attitude. He's a good friend, a sharp thinker, and someone that I uh, am fortunate to, to call a friend. So Mike, if you're listening, best wishes on your tour, and I will see you when you're in Los Angeles in November. Thanks everyone for tuning in again this week. Check out our website at lifeaftergod.org for a complete archive of all of our past shows. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or on Spreaker or wherever you get your podcasts to ensure that you don't miss any of these episodes. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 